Hello everyone, welcome to this next episode of the Tax Byte podcast series. My name is Pieter Dree and I'm very happy that I'm here around the table with great experts in international taxation. Let me first introduce you who I have on my table and then we're going to talk about the topic we will discuss today. First of all, I'm very honored uh, that we have Vikram Shant with us. Vikram is a professor at the University of Lausanne, focusing amongst others on international taxation, TCDR uh, and so on. Isabel Verlinden, Isabel is our transfer pricing expert um, for many years here um, and at the table. And Stefan de Baats, well known in this podcast series, I must say, eh, senior counsel, but basically uh, an expert uh, in transfer pricing who has been in many different uh, uh, at the OECD, at the tax authority. So, uh, Stefan, welcome again in my podcast. Um, today, I want to talk with you about a discussion we also had this afternoon here in our global tax and transfer pricing team. We talked about international tax developments with you, uh, Vikram. That was an extremely interesting discussion we had. Uh, and I want to explore a little bit for the audience uh, what we discussed and what were the key takeaways from that. So let me start with a question for you, uh, Vikram. So this afternoon, we talked about a lot of things. What were your takeaways from our discussion? Well, actually, uh, we, we did speak about a lot of things this afternoon in this uh, fantastic event that was organized by all of you. Uh, one of the take key takeaways is that tax uncertainty is going to be on the rise. And this is not going to go down anytime soon. So the key, one of the key messages that came out here was uh, what were the sources of tax uncertainty. Uh, what we discussed here today was what were the sources of tax uncertainty, both at the national law level, at the tax treaty level, at the European law level, at the transpricing level, at the pillar two level, pillar one level. So I think we we covered the entire gambit of uh, international tax law rules, both on the the existing system and under the new system. And uh, the key takeaway was that uh, after analyzing all these uh, different rules from the perspective of multinationals, that tax uncertainty is still going to be there, and a lot of it. Yeah, thanks, Vikram. And and yeah, Isabel, you you were there during the the discussions. Uh, um, what do you take with you from that uh, to 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 discussions you will have with businesses tomorrow? Thank you, Peter. And uh, let me thank uh, Vikram or Professor Chant, I, sh I should say. Uh, also from my side, you were absolutely fabulous because um, if you are a person who wants to take a piece of the action in day-to-day -day discussions with multinational companies, um, that was extremely useful what you said. Uh, one takeaway um, is now Pillar 2 is there. We have to think about implementation of Pillar 2. And I think most of our clients are, and they have good reasons to be like that, uh, at best a bit lukewarm about Pillar 2. Uh, but not really passionate or very enthusiast. Uh, but we have no other choice than um, taking the bull by the horns now and start um, grappling with what Pillar 2 actually entails. That was uh, definitely your message. And Peter, I think I should uh, bounce the ball back to your court now, because when I talk to clients, you have a number of uh, tax directors who are saying, hey, I did a bit of a uh, back uh, on the envelope calculation. Others are saying, well, I have retrieved some data points. I have some spreadsheets on that. And others are saying, hey, I am working with my advisors, going through the, the full monthly of things, uh, gathering all the data points. And my question now to you is, um, gathering the data points, uh, what is now 
the, the first thing to do and the unavoidable thing to do for tax uh, directors right now? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. I think, as you said, we have done many back of envelope calculations and, and what came out of it is that probably for the, the large majority of the of the businesses impacted by Pillar 2 will be about yeah, compliance and will be about finding, as you say, the right data points to file that declaration in a correct manner to explain that to the, to the auditor who will review uh, the provisions and so on. So that's going to be the real challenge. Now, if you think about data points, I must say, well, we have a list of data points that we use in the exercises that we do and we come almost to uh, 270 data points. And I'm, I'm sure... Um, for specific industries, additional data points will have to be added. You must imagine that in a, in a first step, you need um, the right people to do this exercise. To find 270 data points, you need more than 10, more than 15 sources of information in your organization. So you need a lot of different people involved in this process to find the data points. Um, tax accounting, employee data, you all need that. Uh, it's not going to roll out of the financial uh, reporting system, uh, unfortunately. Um, the first step is then to determine, are you in scope? Even that simple question, are you in scope and which entities of my group are in scope is, is creating a lot of complexity. Uh, you have joint ventures, you have the question on who is my actual ultimate parent entity? What if I cooperate? All things like that, um, that takes a lot of effort uh, just to determine which entities are in scope. And then, then the real work starts in a way because then you start collecting those 270 data points, determining for each data point, is it relevant for us? Is it having a big impact? Who in our organization has access to that data point? And who will be responsible in the future to collect that data point? It's an enormous challenge. I must say that we are looking ahead, I think, at implementation of Pillar 2, realistically, 2024, 1st of January. Um, I think that, that um, there is a general feeling in, in, in the businesses I, I discuss the, the topic with, uh, it's time to really get started because to collect these data points yeah, in one year time, that will be a challenge. So that is a bit uh, where, I, uh, where I see the challenge and, and also the uncertainty because at this moment in time, we don't know how it will uh, in in, in eventually happen. But at this moment in time, we look at a number of unilateral uh, Pillar 2 implementations. We already see differences in perspective, differences in interpretation that must create a lot of uncertainty, that will create a lot of uncertainty a lot of disputes as well. Stefan, a question that I have for you is basically in transfer pricing, you're used to have these kind of disputes and uncertainties. Are there sufficient techniques available and lessons we can take from that for Pillar 2? Thank you, Peter. And a very interesting question, I can say. And just by coincidence, today the OECD published its new figures on uh, dispute resolution and the statistics. And although the OECD gave a very positive message with regard to the number of cases, we can still see that the number of cases in transfer pricing and other ones are still increasing. In particular, since they started collecting new data as from 2016 after the BUPS project. Now, in particular, with regard to, uh, to, um, Pillar 2, what we see is that it is implemented through domestic law. So definitely there will be domestic procedures that are available. Now, whether they will all be resolving the issues, that is another issue, I, I would say. They might not at all resolve the double taxation or the triple taxation that comes out of it. So leaves us actually with the implementation of the existing tax framework, or the tax treaty framework. 
There we have the articles or the, the, the traditional articles with regard to the mutual agreement procedure, Article 25.1, which only is a commitment to endeavor to discuss the case and to reach an agreement. Now, this relates to cases covered by the tax treaty. And the point is, as this is domestic legislation, the point is whether this will come into the ambit of Article 25.1. So scholars there are not on the same line. Some say it can, some say it can't. And I'm rather convinced of the second line. Another element is then the use of, in a treaty network, Article 25.3, the first sentence. This is again. What, what does the first sentence say? Just the first sentence. It indicates that a competent authority can consult each other for resolving cases on the interpretation or doubts arising as to the interpretation of the tax treaty. But again, as this is domestic legislation, again it might not come into the ambit of the treaty. Hence, no possibility for the competent authorities to discuss. Also, in this case, this is an, uh, a system that is in, uh, at least initiated by the tax authorities and not by the taxpayer. So the taxpayer is left in the blue, so to say. Another possibility which seems to get the preference of the inclusive framework, but which is also very much discussed, is the use of Article 25. Three, second sentence. And I can see your question coming, Peter. What does this sentence indicate? It actually indicates that uh, the, the competent authority can consult each other for cases not provided for by the treaty. So this could actually be some kind of hook to resolve the cases. But there are some drawbacks again. This is that this is again not initiated by the taxpayer. It is initiated by the tax authorities. There is only a commitment to endeavor to resolve the case. So not in all cases, there may be a solution. And the, the, the other thing is, well, this sentence may not be available in all tax treaties. Okay. So you may be completely lacking the tool there. Also, some scholars, some scholars indicate this might be a first step towards dispute resolution in the case of Pillar 2. Some scholars indicate that this tool can actually work. I would rather say it is a start of, of a system that can lead to, a, to, to step on to further initiatives. Other scholars actually indicate that this cannot work and that you need a multilateral solution or at least treaty adaptations through a multilateral convention to adapt the treaties. Yeah. So you say, I assume Vikram agrees, but let's ask Vikram, of course, uh, your view on this, because I think what, what I hear from Stefan in, in, in my own words is, yeah, the tools are possibly not sufficient, not there sufficiently available for, for a taxpayer to, on its own initiative, have certainty on solving the double taxation. Would you agree that at this moment the, the, the tools are not sufficient or do you see? Well, yes, like Stefan basically said, Article 25.3, second sentence, can definitely be used as a starting solution. 
Uh, but uh, Peter, you you were and you've been analyzing all the Pillar Two rules, and you see that under the Pillar Two framework, uh, taxing rights can be allocated to different countries. And when taxing rights are allocated to different countries, either under the QDMTTs or the IIR or the UTPR, uh, especially when the if the UTPR applies, then there can be multilateral disputes. And then possibly in the long term. Um, one option that can be contemplated is a multilateral mechanism for avoiding disputes. Mm-hmm. But to start with, I think 25 three second sentence provides a decent um, decent initial solution. Yeah, and I imagine that that when we look at the timeline of Pillar Two, we will be looking at declarations being filed. Just thinking out loud, somewhere in 2026, disputes coming afterwards. A multilateral instrument takes time. Do you think it's feasible by the time that disputes are there that that that's on issue for the OCD or or that such a multilateral instrument can be can be? Uh, well, yes, I think that would be the that would be the perfect solution. That uh, there's a multilateral instrument, and in this multilateral instrument, it's not only about dispute resolution. I think a lot of other things can also be put in this multilateral instrument. For example, uh, the compatibility of the entire Pillar Two framework with tax treaty law. So I've written a paper on this. Many other scholars have written a paper on this, including professors from Belgium, Professor Luc Debro, uh, arguing that uh, the Pillar 2 framework conflicts with tax treaties and they cannot really apply Pillar 2 without changing tax treaties. So in this multilateral instrument, you can also have a safeguard clause which would permit countries to apply uh, uh, the Pillar 2 rules without any treaty modification. So because a multilateral instrument clause would supersede a bilateral instrument clause. So in addition to dispute resolution, you can also put provisions on treaty compatibility. Plus, at the same time, you can also put provisions um, associated with the rule order. Um, Because you see under the Pillar 2 framework, taxing rights can be allocated to different countries. So then the question is, will the countries respect the rule order? Because as you all know, the starting point is the UP gets the right to tax. And then you have the popes, if the, the popes pop up, and then the popes have the first right to tax, and the UP will provide the credit. Uh, so all this entire rule order can be um, can be agreed in the multilateral instrument. Plus, at the same time, you can also think about the qualification status of all rules, because the Pillar 2 project contains a lot of rules which need to be qualified. If you talk about qualified domestic minimum top-up taxes, qualified income inclusion rule, qualified UTPR, qualified refundable tax credits, all this is qualified. Well, it can be done in the short term through peer, the peer review process, which uh, is being done for the other kind of web uh, um, action plans which the OECD has initiated. But actually, the qualification status as such needs to be accepted if, so, if a particular country is considered to have a qualified IIR, that needs to be accepted by all the countries and that can only come in if they sign multilaterally sign up to a particular instrument and they agree that they will agree with other countries qualified status of the rules uh, because right now if a country says i have a qualified income inclusion rule and the other country says well from my perspective you don't have a qualified income inclusion rule then what happens then you're stuck with double taxation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I think that is the that is a real real danger on the table and and obviously a concern uh, for the audience. Now, if I step in the shoes of uh, of, of of the the audience listening to this podcast, I can imagine being confronted with all kinds of issues nowadays: uh, flexibility of labor, energy prices, the political situation. Uh, there's so many things, and then on top of that comes pillar two. So I'm I'm looking 
uh, last time at you, Isabel, if you tomorrow will sit in front uh, of a, a tax director confronted with all these problems, what is your your key message on Pillar 2? Uh, and, and, and knowing that the stakes are extremely high if you are confronted with double taxation uh, in the end. Thank you, Peter. Uh, excellent question, eh, obviously. And I think all our clients are very well aware of the fact that the direction of travel is clear on minimum taxation. And, and I think nobody even questions uh, the, the, the foundation uh, of Pillar 2. But, but the implementation is going to be a nightmare, to put it mildly. I already mentioned the data points uh, to which you eloquently uh, responded. Um, I, I would like to add another action point because... Obviously, we are waiting impatiently for more uh, means and tools to uh, take away double taxation if that uh, pops up. Uh, but an important one is to keep track as a tax director of uh, where your people are, what they are doing, where. And why am I saying that? There is so much proliferation of brain power, and this is making the world actually better. It might come across as mellow, but um, it's it's amazing how you see that um, expertise is scattered around. We have more and more tools to work from anywhere, but we are having uh, a difficult question. And I'm so glad that Vikram is here with us because um, we know that the DEMPI um, definition is the overarching team when uh, dealing with um, proliferation of senior executives. In other words, what are the important functions, the functions in terms of development, enhancement, maintenance, exploitation, and so on, um, very much uh, important uh, and very much focusing on what senior executives are doing. But at the end of the day, the transfer pricing guidelines and how I love to talk about those, and I'm sure a few of you would uh, of the listeners, but anyway, I'm going to give it a try because in the guidelines, the starting point is the control over entrepreneurial risk. And you can have very important people sitting in whatever country, but it, it all starts with the control over an asset. Uh, control over an asset is the starting point of creating economic rent, if I can use that word. So this whole control over risk uh, notion is something we know now uh, clearly from chapter one in the OECD guidelines. Since five years, we have that now. It should be a beacon uh, when dealing with uh, international tax matters um, in, in particular. But where we see that quite some scholars are saying, yeah, but the implementation, the application, the interpretation by tax authorities and even taxpayers is not fully aligned. And so this is um, amplifying the problem of, of double taxation. So uh, Vikram, you wrote so much about it and DEMPIs and control over risk. I understood that the OECD is also saying um, we are going uh, to take some action about that and uh, see where we can make the guidelines more clear. Is that something you would like to comment on? And Peter, can I take yeah, sure. uh, your role as moderator for a second and ask um, uh, Vikram that question? Well, yes. Um, you know, I think a lot of work can still be done on this control over risk concept as well as the DEMPI concept and how it actually spans out in uh, practice. It is a big issue uh, when you have uh, people like people, the decision make the key decision makers sitting for one come. If you take one legal entity and you have the decision makers of this legal entity sitting in different parts of the world, or at the same time, uh, senior researchers who are working on a IP project sitting in different parts of the world, 
for one legal entity, then this legal entity is exposed to a host of issues, uh, a tremendous amount of issues. And these issues not only relate to transfer pricing, don't forget the P angle. Um, uh, and then, you know, of course, the profit attribution to P question, but also think about the residency issues um, this legal entity could be exposed to, residency and P risk and then profit attribution risk. So a bulk of risks do show up. So uh, when you talk about control over risk, there are, of course, more work can be done in this in, in this area. But I'll be curious to see myself what uh, what uh, what kind of work will come out from the OECD in this area, except the fact that they will give more and more examples in the context of different business models. So what's going to happen? Yeah, that's why we need academics uh, like you, um, uh, Vikram, to help those organizations also that set the scene. I would like to um, um, go back to you uh, now, Peter, but uh, not without saying that the call for action, I think, for uh, multinationals right now is to take the value chain, the various stage gates in the value chain, and see what senior executives are doing what, how does that tie um, concretely to the control over risk? And when you do that exercise of looking into all those stage gates, you can also um, catch um, two birds with one stone, I think, because you can also build in other levies, um, what new levies, plastic taxes, CBAM, whatever, um, new taxes that will um, become very, very relevant in the not-too-distant future. So um, uh, that would be the other call for action, I think, uh, Peter. Yeah, thanks a lot, Isabel. I think with that, we come towards the end of the podcast. That's a bit what we have, have time for today. I noted down several several interesting conclusions. Eh? So in the discussion in the team we had this afternoon with you, Vikram, there was a lot on sources of uncertainty, how to solve it. The way that my conclusion was a bit like, it's like uh, a solid uh, uh, castle for taxes is built by building blocks. Uh, the transfer pricing needs to be solid, what Isabel talked about on functions, uh, value. Um, then also, um, yeah, the pillar two, a new element of uncertainty can be tackled by well preparing, I think, the different data points and the uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, the, the model you have for that. So I think that would be my key takeaway. Uh, preparation uh, might be key to avoid the dispute uh, in the end. Um, with that, I would like to thank you. I would like to ask if uh, perhaps uh, Stefan, if you have any final words uh, uh, for the audience uh, from from today. Uh, thank you, Peter. Yes, I have. And uh, again, it is on pillar two. Uh, be assured, pillar two is coming. It may be a short message, but it is coming. EU countries might very well be leading the, the dance, so to say, uh, with France, Germany, Netherlands, a couple, a couple of uh, Belgium also has, has committed to Pillar 2. And with Hungary very likely lifting its veto, there is nothing that would impede uh, unanimity on a directive. And the second element I, I would like to say uh, in Pillar 2, there will of course be transitional measures um, based on CBCR data. So the second thing I would say is, okay, take a look at that CBCR data because it could reveal certain things. Okay. And with that, I would like to thank Vikram, Isabel, Stefan for joining me in this podcast. The audience as well. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, stay tuned via Apple, Google, Spotify uh, for next episodes to come. Thank you.